It's great to be with you in this final of the series of Gospel to the World. Before I speak, I'm going to pray again and ask that God might indeed speak to us. So please pray with me. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your mercy you sent him to live, die, rise again, return to you, and one day return back to this world in judgment. And as we now contemplate your plans as they are unleashed, please help us to see our part in it and live appropriately to your glory. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Australians all, let us rejoice, for we are young and free. So begins our national anthem, which we sing with great gusto, don't we, when we win the final of the World Cup cricket, for example, not over there perhaps, but over here, and also at big football games, and also when our athletes win their gold medals. Not that the fellas did all that well in the swimming championships recently. But mind you, because most Aussies don't know the words to our national anthem, in a great show of class, we'd rather sing... Aussie, 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 wouldn't we? Because that's about all that we know. Now, if we were Israelites in the days of the Old Testament, though, my guess is that the closest thing to a national anthem that we might have sung would have been Psalm 2. For not only was it a song to sing with great gusto, not only was it a song that declared the greatness of the people, it was a song that focused on their monarch, not unlike God Save the Queen which used to be our national anthem a number of years ago. It was a song that provided God's blueprint, God's blueprint for the world. And what we're going to do is, for this particular talk, anchor ourselves in Psalm 2 as we look at the plans and purposes of God for this world. Here are the first three verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It is God's blueprint, God's plans, involves a plot, note, by the nations, those who are not Israelites. But their plot is useless because it is a united plot against The Lord. And every time you see the word Lord spelt in capital letters, it refers to God's personal name, Yahweh, and against his anointed one, his king. And this is what our world is like, you see. This is what we explored last week. Our world is a world where the nations are plotting against God, where the nations are in rebellion against God, and more of that in a moment. But as the nations plot against God, look at his response. We read in verse 4 to 6, Well, he, that is God, Yahweh, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Oh, their rebellion, the rebellion of the nations is an absolute joke. And furthermore, God will install his king in his place, in Zion, the hill upon which Jerusalem is built. And when we meet this king, when we meet this king who is 
God's appointed king? What will we know of this king? Look what the king says in verses 7 to 9. I will tell the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Or the king, God's king, turns out to be his appointed son. And he's no ordinary son, for he stands to inherit these nations that plot against him. Indeed, he will rule them with terrifying power that that we will succumb to one way or another. And so how ought we to respond? Now therefore, O kings, O rulers, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wise up, O leaders. Get a grip, O kings. If you don't turn to the son, he will see you perish in terrifying judgment. The wise thing to do is to serve him, note, by rejoicing with trembling. It's a funny mix of emotions, isn't it? How do you rejoice with trembling? On the one hand, you've got to rejoice, but if you rejoice without trembling, well, it becomes a very superficial kind of piety in which you're going around with all these great noises of acclamation and applause and joy, but it lacks the substance of real holiness. But on the other hand, if you have trembling without joy, why it becomes almost like incantations and and magic where it's so superstitious as to have no joy whatsoever. Oh, it's a very appropriate response to rejoice with trembling. The wise thing to do is to do this because there is no refuge from the sun. There is only refuge in the Son. You see why, as we work through this very quickly, why the Israelites would have enjoyed this psalm like a national anthem for them. It's almost saying, my king's better than your king. Hear those words? I don't know whether you know Colin Buchanan. If, if you don't, you really need a light. <laughs> a good old Colin has a song, My Dad's Better Than Your Dad, My Dad's Better Than Your Dad, because he's got an electric shaver, My Dad's Better Than Your Dad, and goes on and on and on goes on. Well, Psalm 2 is something like that. My king is better than your king. In fact, he's so much better that he is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. In fact, he's got a broader variety. He's going to smash you guys into pottery like a potter's vessel. You can see why they would sing such a song with great gusto. But how was this blueprint, how was this anthem, how was this song unleashed in history? Well, here's where we're going to be looking at the points in a little bit more detail. As we look firstly at the nations, the nations that have been plotting against God. You might remember that before Genesis chapter 11, there was really only one people. There were no nations to speak of. 
But it was there where they first united as one people to build a tower, the Tower of Babel, a tower that could reach to the heavens and depose God from his position. But in judgment, God scattered this united people to create the nations. When you and I think of the nations, when you and I think of people, groups and languages, I wonder whether, like me, you have this romantic sense of wanting to travel, to see, to learn, to be enriched by, and at one level, I hope you do. I wish you every blessing on this short-term mission to India. I hope it is that you can not only appreciate it in your head, but when you get there, not just see the poverty, but smell the poverty, experiencing it face to face, because then you will know what real poverty is like. Then you will know why it is that the world really is the way it is. And I hope you learn much from it. But has it ever occurred to you that at its very origin, the diversity of languages, the diversity of cultures has been shaped by sin and rebellion against God since Babel. And that even in its diversity, they plot in every language, they plot in every culture, whether primitive or modern, against God. Well, you only have to read the newspapers just for a couple of days, don't you? Or or just live in another family for 36 hours or thereabouts to see that this plot against God is something that is absolutely palpable. It's not hard to prove, is it? To see that humanity has a bias towards selfishness, has a bias towards evil that reflects a rebellion against God, a plot against God. (coughs) The trouble is that everyone always wants to uphold the notion that humanity is basically good. And the university seeks to back that up with our studies in anthropology, which has largely come out of that man called Rousseau the father of modern anthropology, so he's called. And it goes all the way back, isn't it, to actually say that, well, humanity really is basically good, and and the proof of that, according to some anthropological studies, is the so-called noble savage. That is, when you go to that society which has been untouched by the influence of the wild west, this pristine culture, that they will be good to the core, they will be innocent, naive, and it's been, well... Illustrated by that movie, I think you've seen it, The Gods Must Be Crazy. You've seen that movie? Yeah, it's a lovely movie, it's a fun movie. And it actually upholds this idea of the noble savage, where it's so pristine and innocent and good and wonderful until a Coke bottle is landing in there. And everything goes through it, and everybody's committing great gross acts of sin because it is the Coke bottle that came from the West. But it's all a fabrication and a lie, really, isn't it? Because there is no such thing as a noble savage. Everybody's a savage savage, really. If you go to those parts of primitive Africa or primitive India and so on, I suspect you will see sin at its core like you would in any other place. If you were to even take a cursory look at ancient and modern history you would see that humanity has been anything but good. Pagan humanity has always been savage to one another and ultimately savage toward God. 
And furthermore, in an increasingly godless society like our own in Australia, we simply define sin away, don't we, and determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. Rapidly changing attitudes towards sexual behaviour, for example, what a generation ago thought was wrong, is now something that is to be upheld and perfectly appropriate. And the rise of technology to see sexuality abused and the rise of child pornography, well, that is savagery beyond compare. That is slavery in the end. And what of our ethics regarding embryonic stem cell research? Why, a generation ago, it was considered to be immoral, but now it's upheld as the cutting edge of technology. We just define sin away, don't we? There is a savagery, really even if it's not quite conscious in the heads of those who are seeking the good of humanity, to actually play around with life is playing God. It's because we as the nations, while well, we have leaders who plot Psalm 2, and our leaders are savage leaders. They're not just human leaders. They're not just the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Pol Pots, the Mousy Tungs. But spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders that conspire against God and his king. I don't know whether you've looked at the book of Revelation a lot in recent times, especially those middle chapters, but if you get to chapters 12 to 14, which we don't have time to look at in great detail now, you actually meet an unholy trinity in the devil and his two cohorts, a sea beast and a land beast. The devil is depicted in chapter 12 as a dragon who, although defeated, is furious at God and furious at his people and he knows that his time is short and he's throwing everything into persecuting God's people. And then there is the sea beast who is this terrifying creature who symbolises someone and people or whoever throughout the ages. It has a fatal wound that is healed and keeps on occurring throughout history to persecute God's people physically. That's one cohort, the sea beast. On the other hand, there is the earth beast. And the earth beast crops up as someone who is, well, giving all glory to the sea beast and then ultimately to the devil. But this earth beast is someone who gets alongside you with a sugar-coated pill. Someone who, who deceives you. Who gets alongside you and, and tricks you into following the world, the flesh and the devil. And I suspect that's more our scenario, that's more our temptation with the greed of materialism, the rise of that technology so that we can see that this seems like such a good thing but in the end we're killing babies in the process called stem cell research. We have human leaders, spiritual leaders who plot and plot and plot as expressions of rebellion against God among the nations. But do you remember how God responded to the plot of the nations? Why? By installing his king on Zion. Zion was the name of the hill that the city of God was built on, Jerusalem. And over and again, Zion was depicted as the place where God himself would dwell. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, Psalm 46. And God's king would rule from Zion. And furthermore, it was prophesied that God's holy city in Zion would be a divine magnet that would 
call all the nations that would stream into Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 2. That was the prophecy. Why? Because that's where God would teach the nations his ways. Teach the nations that that's where he would judge between them. And back in Psalm 2, we learn that God had entrusted all judgment to the Son. To God's Son. And as king, God's son would inherit the nations. He would rule them with an iron scepter. He would be the supreme lord of lords. But who was this son? Now I know that you know that it's Jesus. We all know that, don't we? Because we've been EUers for at least a week now, coming to these public meetings. But it's that knee-jerk reaction, which is all, although so, so right and so proper, fails to appreciate something of the background that leads to Jesus coming as the Son. I don't know whether you've heard the story of a lovely Sunday school teacher who actually asked her Sunday school class, what's grey and furry and eats eucalyptus leaves, black nose? And there was a big pause, and then one of the little kids put up their hand ever so gently and said, Sounds like a koala, but I know the answer's Jesus. <laughs> it's a bit like that, isn't it? We know it's Jesus. But there's a bit more background to it there. See, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn how God had promised King David of something to come. King David had a dream. God spoke to him through the prophet Nathan and this is what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. See, here is an unconditional promise to King David regarding his son. His son was to rule the kingdom forever. But do note, you can't think it's immediately... Uh, Jesus here, can you? Because he is going to punish him when he does wrong. Well, Jesus didn't do wrong, so who is he referring to here? Well, let me ask you. Who is it that we know were amongst David's sons? Come and tell me. Just shout out any sons who sat on the throne of King David. Just names of sons. Yeah, there's a few there. <laughs> so, um, this is EU, isn't it? That's right. Okay. So, that's right. Someone over here. Someone over here. Solomon, yes, he's the first son of David. Great king, too. Anybody know how many wives he had? Uh, several hundred. In fact, it was 700 wives. And he also had Clayton's wives, you know, the concubines, 300 wives. So, therefore, 700 plus 700. A thousand women, he had to look out there. I know, 
But you know, I want to ask you, or rather inform you, that every king who sat on the throne of David was a son of God. That's what 2 Samuel said, was saying. So therefore the title son of God belongs to someone like Solomon. was a son of God. He didn't commit wrong. And therefore he was punished, certainly, in the generations after. Any other kings? We mentioned a few other kids before. Any other kings after Solomon? Just name any. Jeroboam. Jer- Jeroboam, he was actually up north. Jeroboam, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. They're all bad in the north. Yeah. I'm bad, I'm bad, you know what? I'm bad, thanks to my life. <laughs> Northern kings, southern kings. Rehoboam, yes, Rehoboam, yes. He was the son of God. And also, there's other ones. You know, the Korean one, Jehoiakim. He was the son of God. And my favourite, he's my favourite thing, Jehoiakim. throne of King David. It was vitally important to recognise that because, you see, that's where they had to look to, to look to this king. Jesus was the one. Jesus who arrived at his kingship through his death and his resurrection. Oh, you're going to have a great ancon, aren't you? That topic of the resurrection is so, so vital in understanding this language, this title I put to you, of the Son of God as well. But as the Son of God, as the ruler, as the one of Psalm 2, that Son of God, well, look how the book of Revelation, now we're going to propel all the way to the book of Revelation, look how it describes him there when Jesus fulfilled his role through his death and his resurrection. From his mouth, we read, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, this one will rule. And this one when he comes will tread the winepress note of the fury of the wrath of God. Oh, do note, O nations, and we who belong to the nations, there is refuge in the Son but not from the Son. When he returns, the nations and every individual in the nations who have not found refuge in him will be thrown into that great winepress of the wrath of God. And what more do we learn of this winepress? In chapter 14, we have this imagery where the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 studia. That's 296 kilometres. It's a horrific picture of hell. Here is a picture of the raging ocean of God's righteous wrath where the Lord himself treads on the winepress in his righteous fury against the rebellious nation, so much so that the blood of the inhabitants oozes out to the level of a horse's mouth for 296 kilometres. Oh, we must be careful 
Because this is an apocalyptic language with imagery that is symbolic. But please therefore note that if this is symbolic language, what will the reality be like? We all deserve this judgment of hell. And the biblical assumption of the justice of hell is a clear testimony to the infiniteness of the sin of rebelling against God. And the infinite horrors of hell are intended by God to be a vivid demonstration of the infinite value of the Son of God. He reigns supreme and he will judge. And in his infinite, infinite mercy, he lived, he died, and he rose again to enable us to find refuge in him. And in his infinite mercy, Jesus is holding back this final wrath for only one of two reasons, as far as I can tell, in the scriptures. The first reason has got to do with martyrdom. And it's there found in Revelation chapter 6, actually. Let me read it to you. Here is a scene in which we have God and the one who's holding the, a scroll in his hand and it's got seven seals and each of the seals are being unleashed and, and unleashing the plans of God. When we reach the fifth seal here in Revelation 6 we read, when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. That is to say, they are longing for the day of judgment, these who have been martyred for the faith. Because wickedness will actually see judgment. And if you have been a victim of wickedness, you can rejoice on that last day, like the people of God will, where the, in Revelation 19 they sing out hallelujah at the judgment of Babylon, that great prostitute who really sums up the nations in their wickedness, in their plot against God. But the first reason why Jesus hasn't returned to judge the world finally is because the full numbers of martyrs has not been reached. So if you want Jesus to return, go out and get martyred. In 1992, Lindsay Brown, who is the General Secretary of the International Movement of which we are a part, went to Peru. There was an uprising with the guerrilla movement. They chose... The Christian group on a campus chose to have their conference, their equivalent to ANCON, at a conference site which was very close to the headquarters of this guerrilla movement which has risen up against the government. When Lindsay Brown actually asked them, why are you holding the conference there? He said, well, because it's cheap. <laughs> a dollar a day. This guerrilla movement had told the Christians to be silent. 
In fact, they used to have notices of the names on the university notice boards actually telling us which names of the people they were going to kill in the next week. And then they'd kill them, come back and scrub the name off. One of the girls who was at this camp told Lindsay that she had stayed silent for three years. But when she came to read the scriptures, when she came to understand God's blueprint for the world, when she came to understand the nature of who Jesus is and what he had done, she decided to stay silent no longer. I don't know what's happened to her. But she was willing to be martyred. That's 1992. That's not that long ago. Now, I suspect in this part of the world we may not all be called upon to die physically for our Lord, but are we not all called upon to take up our cross daily to follow Jesus? To live no longer for ourselves, but to live for Jesus. So that whatever it takes, it will be better to die than to gossip, or better to die than to commit sexual immorality, or better to die than to be greedy or lie or steal, better to die than to dishonour our parents, Why, better to die than to be ashamed of our Lord Jesus before our friends? We've got such a great opportunity next week to bring your friends along to, to stand up for Jesus, to be bold for Jesus, to do the lecture shouts, to do whatever it is that you do and you are so good at doing them. The first reason that Jesus has not returned to unleash his final judgment of wrath is because the full number of martyrs has not been reached. But the second reason is mercy. 2 Peter 3 But do not overlook this this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The only other reason is that God is holding off in mercy, to allow time for people to repent, allow time for people to turn back to him. Every single person, though, is precious to him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Please note that although God's judgment is real and true and something that we look forward to, God is not into judgment like he is into mercy. It's not as if they are equal and opposite attributes in God. When we talk about response, there are two ways to live. That's right and proper. But in the end, we can't bring that back into the theological system, as it were, to say that God is therefore equal and opposite in terms of his justice and his mercy, in my view. He speaks of his judgment as his strange work in the book of Isaiah. He's more into mercy than he is into judgment. God doesn't stand upright like the Eiffel Tower. He leans towards mercy like the leaning tower of Pisa. He's into mercy. For love and mercy are at the heart of his blueprint in the supremacy of Christ. And as his blueprint, as his plans are unleashed among the nations, you and I will be caught up in it one way or another. And in closing, I just want to share with you something of God's plans as he's unleashed them, actually, through university students in history. You know, our roots at 
Sydney Uni Evangelical Union. I hope you don't mind me saying our here because of my association. It's really from Cambridge University. Do you realise that? In fact, I think our buildings are somewhat similar, certainly over that part of the campus. Do you know, on the eve of what is known as the English Reformation, there was a man named Thomas Ridley who gathered a group from Cambridge to study the New Testament in Greek and the writings of Martin Luther. They did that in secret and they actually kind of converted one another as they read the New Testament in Greek for the first time where the filter of Roman Catholicism came off because they could only read uh, the Bible in Latin up to that point. And then there were people like Charles Simeon, who I know a number of you know of, who was like an Anglican chaplain in those days. There were only Anglicans in those days who were doing their kind of thing on the campus and recruiting people who were converted people and and filling the pulpits throughout England. And then there was a man named William Wilberforce who was actually involved in part of this uh, movement, the evangelical movement on the campuses. He was the one who actually saw slavery actually abolished over the years. But he kept on lobbying the parliament to send a chaplain on the first fleet to Sydney. That chaplain was a Cambridge student. His name was Richard Johnson. Do you realise that Sydney evangelicalism owes its roots really to Cambridge University and Richard Johnson and so much of what's taken place? Now, I know this is an interdenominational group. Okay? I have roots in the United Church and the Methodist Church and I'm currently attending the Church, so I'm very excited. One of them actually became an archbishop here. But through that movement as well, there was another man who really has effect here. His name is Howard Guinness. He didn't come from Cambridge, but he came from London University, a medical graduate. But he was someone who was influenced by the movement coming out of Cambridge and also ultimately at London University. After his time at med school... The graduates from London University Ministry were so strongly influenced by the ministry there that they were longing to see groups like that set up, not only over England, but all over the world. It was out of Cambridge that the Cambridge Seven came from, you might recall, with CT Stud, etc. But what they did, these students gathered together, they sold all their sporting equipment in order to buy a one-way ticket for Howard Guinness to go to Canada and ultimately to Australia and at Sydney University. They sold their sports equipment. You kind of think, well, what's that? Can you imagine selling your mobile phones, your cars, your iPods in order to buy a ticket for someone to go? That's what they did. And how Guinness, as many of you will know, it's Guinness, by the way, not Guinness. I've checked with his daughter. It's Guinness. That's how you pronounce it. It's a famous family, Guinness Beer and so on. He helped found the EU here together with most of the main cities throughout Australia in the 30s because they knew the blueprint of God, because they could seek and savour the supremacy of Christ, because they longed for students to be saved from hell and to see these students raised up as a generation to go to the ends of the earth. One-way ticket 
Oh, and one overcoat thrown in. What are you willing to do? If you know God's plans and purposes, well, the first thing to do is to pray for your friends for next week, isn't it? But what else can you do? I think most of you know, but if you're here as a guest, I'm so glad that you're here, most of you know that there is a thing called, uh, is it the Howard Guinness Project, or what's the project? Where people are seeking to consider whether they could consider ministry as a vocation and certainly be trained in ministry for a couple of years and to be equipped to flood God's church wherever. And I think there's an information night coming up. It doesn't clash with that other night. I've just checked with your, your exec, right? It doesn't clash with whatever it is. It's after, so you can go to both. You can actually find out more about that. And the people to ask are your exec leaders and as well as the staff who are here. It's a good thing to... I'd really commend you at least inquiring about it. It, it's, it may be years off. That, that's fine. It's, that, it's on the radar is what I want you to consider. Because you guys, as opposed to most people, you guys, I think, ought to be considering training seriously, perhaps even vocationally, in ministry or mission work. Because of God's plans unleashed. It may be that you do so one way or another, living lives worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in this world. Now please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you that in your plans and purposes you sent your dear Son to die the death that we deserve and to rise up again to become the Son of God. And that in your plans you are longing for people not to perish. And that you have poured out your mercy in being patient in not bringing out this final judgment. Oh, our Father, please help us to understand the times that we live in now, therefore. To long for our friends to be saved from this final judgment. And to be caught up with your plans one way or another. Perhaps to consider seriously how it is that we can be trained in ministry. Perhaps even asking, inquiring about the Howard Guinness Project. And whatever happens, Father, please help us to conduct ourselves in a manner that is truly worthy of your gospel. And Father, we pray all of this for Jesus' most precious sake.